So I'll invite you now to turn with me to God's Word, to Hebrews chapter 11, where we will this morning be reading, starting in verse 23, and Mark making our way through into chapter 12 to verse 2. And as it's the first Sunday, I figure it's an interesting Sunday and an interesting time always at the beginning of the year to reflect on where we've been and where we are heading where we're going. God's Word teaches us, as we'll see here this morning, to look back in order to build and expand our faith for what God will do in the future. There's a famous illustration from the great Reformed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon of the 19th century who told us that you could think of looking back in history the same way that you might pull a bow back to shoot the arrow. The further back you pull the bow, the further and the straighter the arrow, arrow will go in the future. So when we look back to our past as God's people, the further we'll be able to go into the future in this new year and in the years ahead. And so our passage this morning, which was perfectly sort of paired up with this song, great, great job on that, JP, uh, is all about the Hall of Faith passage that we know from chapter 11, where we look at stories such as Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and so on. And the author's intent here in this part of the scriptures is to draw our attention back to God's people and what God has done in being faithful to them and how they, by faith, walked, not by sight, but with a strong, unshakable conviction and who he is. And so what we learn from all of this is that faith is the key spiritual ingredient for enduring through not only the good times, but more importantly, through the difficult times, the bad times, the times when faith in Christ is costly and even dangerous. And so faith, as the first verse of the chapter teaches us in chapter 11, is said to be the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so in other words then, faith is the settled conviction that God is God and that everything He has promised will therefore not only come true, but will make all the present suffering and difficulties that we face worth it in the end. It will all be worth it. And so Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12 is primarily a passage that teaches us That when we have this kind of faith, we will be able to endure no matter what comes ahead. And so with this in mind, let's go before the Lord and ask for his grace upon our reading this morning. Our Father, we turn to your word knowing that here alone we find yourself revealed to us. We find you and your light is cast upon our path in life. Lord, help us to listen to your word this morning. By your Spirit, illumine our minds and our hearts that we may understand it by faith and that we may be changed by the reading of it. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect." Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we've just read here, you might say, is the conclusion and transition of one of the high marks of the entire book of Hebrews, which is itself one of the more remarkable books in the New Testament. More than any of the other books in the scriptures, Hebrews is a book that is dead focused on the faith between the Old Testament faith and what life was like in the Old Covenant in comparison then and, and drawing connections to the New Covenant. And so in a word, Hebrews, you might say, is all about Jesus Christ, who it again points to over and over again as being the perfect fulfillment of all that was promised by God in the Old Testament Scriptures. 
And so, whereas most of the books of the New Testament are written either to audiences that are predominantly Gentile or they're a mixture of both Gentile and Jewish, the book of Hebrews is written quite clearly, as the name implies, to the Hebrews or to the Jews, to the Jewish Christians who had believed what the prophets had spoken and had placed their faith in this Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And so, This book is wanting to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Covenant was pointing forward to all along. And so in this sense, you might say Hebrews is an early book of apologetics. It's an early explanation of and defense of the Christian faith, trying to argue and to, to, to clarify who Jesus is in relation to the Old Testament. And so we could say to start out, the book of Hebrews makes a claim. That claim is that Jesus is this promised Son of God, this Messiah who is going to be greater and better than the imperfect law and temple and priesthood and sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. So it makes that claim, and then it makes a case. It builds the case over the next several chapters of how Jesus is exactly this this proclaimed Messiah, this prophesied Messiah, and why he is better and greater than all that had come before, showing that all of these things pointed to him, but he is the grand fulfillment of them all. And then finally, the book of Hebrews makes a call again and again, an exhortation imploring its readers to endure anything and everything, to not go back on their faith, to not, uh, to not backtrack, to not give up hope and faith in this God that has called them forward in Christ. And so this is where our passage comes in this morning, the so-called Hall of Faith passage. Here in Hebrews 11, the author is dead set on giving a sort of chronological laundry list of old saints who, by faith, endured every challenge that was thrown at them, who did not go back on their faith, who did not backslide, you might say, but even persevered through torture and through death because of their indestructible confidence in the faithfulness of God. And so here, the author of Hebrews is not so much trying to explain faith and talking about how faith may be what what justifies us. That's often what the author Paul does, and that's the way that he looks at faith, how faith is what justifies us by receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ. Here, faith is talked about in a slightly more general sense, trusting the promises of God as being uh, grounded on the firmness of God's character. And so theologians call this attribute of God, this firmness of who he is, the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. God is unchanging, therefore all of his promises will come true and we can have perfect faith and confidence in him. Even as Hebrews 13 verse 8 famously tells us, and you may remember these words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that is the nature of God, to be the same always. And so for God's people, this immutability or this unchanging nature of God means that we can endure anything, knowing that our God will see us through. He has promised us good things, and he will never fail to provide them for us. And so, regardless of whether or not we see the fruit of this faithfulness in this life, we can endure knowing that what's ahead is greater 
and better than anything that is behind us, and even anything that this life and this world has to offer us. And so this is what we see in our passage this morning, this kind of faith. And so in verses 23 through 28, we see the whole life of Moses and compacted into six powerful verses, starting from his birth and his parents' faithful disobedience to the decree of Pharaoh to murder all of the male children to Moses' own willful choice to forsake a life of luxurious royalty and power in favor of a life in solidarity with the beleaguered and enslaved people of God. And so the crux of this entire passage, I think, comes to us in verse 26, where we read these words, that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Here Moses is essentially depicted, we might say, as an appraiser, as one who is going and evaluating and discerning and assessing the value of something. He wants to think about which one is more valuable here, the power and wealth of Egypt you can think about the great, vast wealth of Egypt. If you've ever watched any documentaries and you've seen the tombs of the pharaohs, you know what kind of gold and what kind of wealth was in store for Moses if he had simply stayed and remained with the royal household. Or he had to think about whether the reproach of Christ was more valuable than this. And the key word here is that Moses considered these things. Considered. The Greek word here, hegeomai, means that he thought through these things carefully. This wasn't a quick decision that he made, sort of off the cuff. This was something he thought through and weighed the pros and cons of, and that when he did, we can sense that his decision was clear and firm. He was going to stand by his conviction that Christ and his sufferings were far greater value than all the riches and power of Egypt, which is... Again, an incredible thought when we think about how Egypt was this sort of grand empire of the whole world. It was the most powerful and most wealthy empire on the planet at that time. And this then is, in some way, this, the same choice that we face today. Do you value the reproaches of Christ to be greater value than all the riches of this world, than worldly success or increased social status? This is perhaps the single most important question we may ever ask ourselves. Is the reproach of Christ worth it? Is it worth losing all things for? If we don't ask ourselves these kinds of questions and moments of relative peace and relative ease, I fear we will be ill-equipped to do so in times of, of duress when that really comes to the fore, when we're really having to ask this question in a moment of difficulty. And there was a time, not long ago, brothers and sisters, when allegiance to Christ was far more of a social benefit to Christ's followers than it is today. And in some ways, many decades ago, being known as a Christian was something that would sort of result in some good things and an increased social status. It may even bring you more trustworthiness if you were a business owner. It may, uh, if you were, were looking for a sort of upward mobility in terms of society, being a Christian may sort of give you social boosts towards that. 
uh, and it would sort of increase your status amongst the potential friends and neighbors and maybe even make you more hireable. But today, things are undeniably different. As a youth pastor, thinking often about what the life of my students will look like into not just the next few years, but the next 40 or 50 years, I I do sense that things are going to become harder and harder for Christians. I think today, in comparison to how things were, things are undeniably different. We live more and more in what cultural analysis Aaron Wren calls the negative world. And he goes back into the last hundreds or so years of history and says that maybe up until about the early 90s, we were living in the positive world, where being a Christian was seen as a positive thing, a good thing. It was a thing that would increase your status. And then from the 90s or so into the late 2000s, we lived in what he calls the neutral world, where it was kind of neither good nor bad. It was just a feature of your existence, and in some ways it may have been a little bit awkward, but it wasn't bad. And he says in about 2012 or so, things have, since then, things have really begun to shift into what he calls this negative world, where being a Christian is looked at generally negatively, and your beliefs are looked upon as an obstacle to social progress. And so Moses had made a choice, and sooner or later we will too. But the text doesn't just conclude with telling us that he made a single choice. No, he made a choice again and again and again. He stayed with his choice, you might say. And it teaches us that he not only abandoned his royal status in the household of Pharaoh, but in verses 27 and 28, we see that he also left Egypt and kept the Passover. And it would seem then that faith not only empowers us to make that one-time, last-stand, sort of final hurrah sort of decision, but faith also enables us to continue to walk the difficult path of Christ throughout our life. That's the lesson that I think we can learn from Moses. But as the author continues on, of course, noting in verses 29 and 30, we see the courage of the Israelites who followed Moses through the Red Sea and then and on the dry ground, and then as they went into the promised land and they marched around the walls of Jericho. And then even in verse 31, we, say this, we see the story of the infamous prostitute Rahab who famously hospitably welcomed those spies into her into her house and gave them uh, a place to stay as they began to sort of seek out and sense what was going on in the city. And the point of these verses, I think, is that faith in God will sometimes require us to make great risks, to make great risks, and to even risk foolishness, being, being mocked for being a fool, but it also may cause us to make great risks and take great steps and leaps for our own safety. Walking through the Red Sea was a very vulnerable position for the people to be in, knowing that at any moment it could come crashing down upon them as it would for the Egyptians. And so the Israelites risked their lives by walking through this. Why? Why did they do this? because they had faith that God would safely get them to the other side. And then we could see that they risked mockery and, and their reputations being smeared as they almost foolishly walked around the city of Jericho for seven days. And why did they do this? Because they had faith. They had faith that somehow these walls would get brought down by the Lord. 
And Rahab herself risked death as well by giving quarter to these spies, by welcoming them into her home. If she had been found out, she would have surely been put to death. Why did she risk this? Because she had faith that the Lord of Israel was giving Jericho into their hands. And so in all three of these stories, we see that like Moses, faith also involves a willingness to put everything on the line, to go for broke, you might say. From the world's perspective, faith then looks risky, and it may feel risky to us. It may even feel foolish. It's something that a worldly person cannot possibly understand or fathom. They may ask you, but what if you're wrong? What if your God is not real? What if you're actually losing your life and your personal freedom and you will have nothing to show for it in the end? Why not just make the wise decision and live, live your best life now? Why sacrifice all of these things hoping that it will get you some great reward? Why not just do what makes you happy now and live for the things you know will bring you some measure of joy? But with the eyes of, eyes of faith, the Christian responds saying, I'm not wrong. I, I know by faith that God is not only real, but that all of his promises are firm and reliable and true, and that they are guaranteed by his immutable nature, by his inability to change because he is God, and how he will be faithful to all of his promises. And so I'm willing to go all in and put everything on the line because I've considered all the options, I've weighed the pros and the cons, and I know that Christ is worth it. That's how faith rolls, you might say. That's how it carries on. It risks because it knows the ultimate outcome of the situation. It knows that as the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the, to the Roman church, these famous words, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings that I face aren't worth comparing to the weight of glory that is to come. And few among the saints of the Old Testament would have known this better than those mentioned then in verses 32 through 40 of our passage here in Hebrews 11, where the author stacks up many more examples of courageous faith, now in an effort to show us uh, how faith is what enables God's people to persevere even through the most terrifying and terrible situations of life. And so notice how in verse 33 we're reminded that through faith, many of God's people accomplished amazing feats. And here we can really sense that the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It sounds very uh, like, much like a sermon. It's a powerful message. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and that even women received back their dead by resurrection. So in these verses, we learn that faith can sometimes result in good outcomes for God's people, even when it looked previously as though all hope was lost or that failure was inevitable. And this is because we serve a God who knows his way out of the grave. They face these difficult situations, and yet many of them conquered by the grace of God. 
And so it's apt that, that noticing that God is the God of resurrection, that the final part mentioned here is that women received back their dead by resurrection. This shows the power of God. And so when it all looks lost and hopeless, we should not count God out. In fact, in those moments, more than ever, we should bank on him, even if it means our death. That's what faith is about. And this is why from verse 35 through 38, the author goes on to recall examples of the Old Testament where faith did not bring about conquering over great obstacles, but actually where it meant horrible outcomes, torture, mocking, flogging, imprisonment, and yes, even death. Christian, none of these things are to be considered a failure of God's faithfulness. Even in death, God is faithful to us. Even in suffering and in torture and in being sawn in two, as the prophet Isaiah is traditionally believed uh, to have met his fate, God is not unfaithful. God is not weak. God is not wicked. We cannot judge him or be angry with him. His promises, the, the promise of resurrection and eternal embodied fellowship with him forever, cannot be stripped from us even through the worst horrors of this world. This is what the consistent testimony of the martyrs down through the ages teaches us. It's as if their blood cries out from the grave again and again and again saying, Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. And if we're honest, we need that encouragement. We need the encouragement of the many saints mentioned throughout Hebrews 11. And we're foolish if we think we can make it through the trials and difficulties of this day and age without the thundering, irrepressible testimony of these martyrs. Our sisters and brothers who have given their lives to witness to the supreme joy, supreme value and glory that is only found in Jesus Christ. For evangelical Christians like us living in the western part of the world today, we don't tend to think about the significance of martyrs all that much. At best, we tend to think of them on occasion maybe as a nice uh, lesson or story from time to time. And at worst, we might even think of them, though, as crazed lunatics who were very inflexible, unable to sort of give an inch, uh, and they maybe lost their lives because of their zeal and their foolishness. But such a limited perspective on martyrs fails to live up to the way the historic church has understood their importance. For historic Christianity, martyrs have always been seen not just as good examples and certainly not as crazed lunatics, but they've been looked at as the constant companions of God's people on earth who are cheering us on, rooting us on as we walk through this world. Early prayers of the church, actually, uh, for example, bear this out. And one such prayer, a famous prayer, uh, it's called the Te Dotum, or Te, or, excuse me, Te Deum Laudamus, uh, is a prayer that's often prayed in many churches still today that recognizes the place of the martyrs. And so one, one of the lines in the prayer reads like this, the glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of prophets praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. And of course, that language is coming from the book of Revelation, the white-robed army of martyrs. And there's good reason why the church highlighted the importance of them. 
And one good one comes from verse 1 of chapter 12 here in our passage, which specifically refers to them as the great cloud of witnesses by which we are said to be surrounded. And there are two interesting points here to make from this verse. First, the word for witness is the Greek word marturon, which means martyrs. Uh, So their lives and death bear witness. Marturon actually means witness. They're witnesses. Their lives speak to us as witnesses. And so whenever we tell the story of a martyr, you could say what we're doing is telling a sermon. We're witnessing to the glory and to the value of Christ. That even in death, Christ is worth it. And the second point of interest is that it would appear here in verse 1 that there seems to be a sort of double meaning to uh, what exactly these witnesses or martyrs are doing. On the one hand, it's clear that they are bearing witness to us. They are witnessing through their stories, which the author has just recounted at length in the previous chapter. Their lives, are again, are a living testimony. But on the other hand, it would also appear that because they surround us, we might think of them as witnessing us or watching us, gathered around us, eagerly watching our faith play out and our lives and our daily actions play out, and they are rooting us on all along the way. And this would also explain why the verse goes on to say that because they surround us, we need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's almost as if they've come to the racetrack They've ran their leg of the race, and now they've passed the baton to us, and they are cheering us on, encouraging us to continue pushing forward, to put aside the hindrances that cause us to sin, and to race into what God has called us to in our generation. And so if this is the case, I'd like to suggest that it's essential for us to really understand our times, to really understand where we are on this race If we're going to be faithful in our day and understand what we are up against, we'll have to know and have our eyes wide open to the challenges that we face. And so for the past semester, actually, and this has been helpful for me, I've been able to study church history in a more in-depth way with my church at Ammon Valley. I've been able to lead an adult Sunday school class where we've gone through church history from the time of the apostles up to the present day. This is sort of one of my favorite subjects. I've been studying church history for a long time, but really getting into it again for this class to preach through this, or to teach through this series has enabled me to go back in time and to see some of the challenges that God's church has faced throughout the ages. And I think what's clear to me is that we face a religious crisis, and this crisis goes back at least 300 years, if not further, into even the medieval ages. That would be a long story to tell. But it at least goes back into into the Enlightenment uh, of the 18th century. And we can see how we live in a very different world when we compare life before the 18th century and life after. So if we were just to think, and let's go back maybe to 1524. Now that it's 2024, we can go back in our minds to 1524. What was the default belief in God back then? Well, everyone in Western Europe 
believed in God. As a default, it was the normal way of thinking. It was the sort of uh, default setting that if you didn't think too much about it, you would just assume there must be a God, and so I must, in one way or another, make myself right with God. And depending on where you lived and what uh, church was in your area, they may tell you different things. This was the Reformation period, of course. Uh, But there was a deep sense that there is a God. Now, compare to 2024. What is the default opinion of the average person today? It's that there's probably not a God. There's a felt absence of God. God is not here. God has, makes no real uh, calling on my life. And so the default is now just not, not just unbelief, but there's various forms we could say if we wanted to be clear. It's not necessarily outright atheism. In many people's hearts, it's a felt sense of indifference, of a lack of caring about whether or not God is even there. And then for some, it's maybe a suspicious agnosticism uh, where they're not so sure that they're not going to really bank their life on anything one way or the other. And then there are a few who you might say fall into the category of outright atheism. But whatever these different forms take or these manifestations of unbelief take, it's still true that our sort of natural feeling today is unbelief. And there's so much more to say on this issue. There's a lot that could be said. If you're interested in a book, you can write down the title Enduring Divine Absence, which is a great book by a Christian philosopher where he sort of works this out and thinks through it and thinks about what Christians can do. But the the more interesting point to me is that Christianity has not only become harder to believe, but it's becoming harder and harder to respect. The pressures of the modern era not only make it harder for people to be Christians, they make it harder for the church to be the church, for the church to remain true to our calling, to our faith, to our principles, and to our first love, who is Christ. 500 years ago, the church was seen back then as the sort of source for moral reform in the world. But today, and not without great irony, I'll say, the world as seen as the source of moral reform for the church. Many people today would love nothing more than for the church, something they don't necessarily value or care about or even consider, to simply become more like them. While many of us have not heard much about it yet, about 20 days ago, I believe something incredibly significant happened in uh, modern church history. Perhaps even, I might go on the record to say, the most important thing that's happened in my lifetime. I was born 33 years ago. This was the statement of the Roman Catholic Church through the Pope and the Magisterium coming out with a document called Fiducia Supplicans, which granted permission to Roman Catholic clergy to perform same-sex blessings. Now, I should say and clarify here, The Roman Catholic Church has not come out and said that same-sex marriages are okay or allowed. They clearly state in the document that they have not changed their opinion on this, but that under certain circumstances and conditions, priests can bless same-sex couples. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this, sort of getting into the details, but one thing for me that makes this fascinating is that for many, many years now, the Roman Catholic Church has, in many ways, offered an umbrella of strength to the whole global world. And we have lots of issues and 
differences and disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church. But to see even the Roman Catholic Church, sort of this bastion of conservative sexual theology, to see them begin to cave, I think, will signal difficulties to come for all Christians everywhere. I think that this will affect us. And so I want to share with you a quote from a great Reformed Presbyterian church historian and theologian named Carl Truman. He wrote this in a recent article on the website First Things, which is a Roman Catholic website, but there's Protestants that write for it as well. So he writes this, This will also affect Protestants. Whether we like it or not, the officer class of our culture cares little for debates about transubstantiation and papal authority. It makes no real distinction between Catholics and Protestants. In its eyes, we are all Christians, and thus the shenanigans of the Pope will put pressure on us all. The argument will be that if Rome can change, why can we all not change? The possibility of sheltering under that broad cultural umbrella that Rome has provided will be withdrawn on this issue, and we will feel the pain of that. And so while it brings me no joy to say it, I think it's only right to sound a warning of sorts, brothers and sisters. In many ways, not only in 2024, but in the many years ahead, things will not be easy for the church. I think things are in fact going to continue being difficult and more difficult even. But more and more we're going to be living in a society that not only doesn't understand Christianity but more and more begins to turn against it, actively wishing to see it changed and reshaped into its own image. And I think this is why our passage this morning is so important. While these Christians of the first century lived in a very different time and place, we, like them, live in a time where Christianity and being a Christian isn't going to be easy. And so as we prepare to go from here this morning out into the the new year, the year 2024, I think what's needed is a sober analysis of our own souls, of our own walk with the Lord. So given the passage this morning, I think that there are three major questions we should leave here ringing in our minds with. And the first one is this. What do I value most? What do I value most? To me is the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Is worldly fame and power and strength and glory, is that What's truly valuable to me is moving up in my job, having an advanced career, making lots of money, buying a nice home, setting my children up for success in their lives. Is that what's truly valuable to me? Or is there something more valuable? Do I value God above all things? Are the sufferings of Christ more valuable to me than all the treasures of this world? The second question, why do I personally value the Christian faith? Why do I personally value it? I think it's easy and Rippon to value the Christian faith. I think you might argue, even in Rippon, we still live very much in a neutral world scenario where being a Christian is really neither good nor bad. In some ways, it's actually a blessing, and maybe in some ways, it does bring some difficulties. 
So maybe we value the Christian faith because we like the lifestyle. We like that it keeps our, our kids uh, walking along a certain path. We like it because it sort of gives us a community and friends and it gives us a family and so on. We may like it because it's familiar to us. I would encourage you not to like Christianity for those reasons as your ultimate reasons. Those are fine reasons. Christianity has done amazing things and gives us great blessings. But the goal and the, the supreme value of Christianity is to know Christ and to have him be your highest value of all things. And the third question, am I willing to lose all in order to gain Christ? Am I willing to put it all on the line? These are all, you might even say, the same question, just framed differently. But am I willing to risk everything for him? It seems crazy. It seems insane to do so. But this is the sort of question we must ask ourselves. And as we have these questions in our heads, I'll conclude with two final thoughts. The first is this, and it's quite simple. Jesus knows how difficult it is. He's been there. He understands. And this is why verse 2 tells us that as we run this race, we are to do so looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And so more than any of the saints in the cloud of witnesses, Jesus is cheering us on. And he is not only our supreme example, but he is our supreme value and our supreme joy. Even when we trip up and fail and our faith is imperfect, he is the perfecter of our faith. He was perfectly faithful in his life. And so he is with us and he is giving us grace as we make these difficult decisions and ask these hard questions to ourselves. And the second thing to mention is that I think we're called to be realists, but not defeatists. You may think in my sermon this morning that I've just sounded very, very like chicken little. and It's a doomsday scenario that we face. I don't think it is at all. But we need to be honest. We need to be honest. Things are going to be difficult. But they're not going to hell in a handbasket. That is true. And while I think there is a difficult road ahead, I think it's a well-traveled road. And that's what our passage this morning is so helpful with. It shows that God's people have walked this difficult road. It's the same race that we are walking today. Many Christians today, I think, seek, however, they seek revival in our society. And I suppose that this is well and good. We, we should want to see our neighbors and our friends and our families come to know the joy of the Lord and the light of the gospel. But sometimes I wonder if this desire for revival, for many of us, is little more than a veiled prayer for things to go back to the way they used to be, when things were good, when we were living in maybe the positive world. What if God's deeper will, my question this morning is this, what if God's deeper will is that at this moment in history, he's not seeking revival necessarily for the world, but he's seeking revival for the church. What if through the difficult circumstances ahead, God's will is to strengthen us, to purify us, to discipline us, and mold us because of his great love for us? And how would this change the way we walk the road ahead, seeing this as God strengthening us and not God punishing us? Interestingly, this is exactly where the author of Hebrews goes 
in the final section of chapter 12. And so we'll just read a little bit of that. We'll start in verse 1 of chapter 12, and this is where we'll end this morning. We'll simply read through verse 11, and then we'll be done. So join me in our reading. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I think what he's mentioning there, by the way, is the struggle against the sin of being tempted to give up and to go back on Christ, to turn from Christ. So verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's from Proverbs chapter 3. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there from whom, or whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would fill us with more faith, that you would give us the faith that we need to endure and to suffer and to face any difficulties that may come our way. Give us the faith by which we're able to see your supreme value as higher and greater than all the blessings of this world. Lord, help us to look to you throughout all of it, to look to Christ who endured the shame and who endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. May we too have this joy in our hearts as we go through life in this world. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.